0: Welcome to the brownstein hyatt farber Shrek podcast series. The House Financial Services Committee hit the ground running following the August recess, and numerous issues are top of mind for members, including data privacy, interest rate caps, and income inequality. Mark Begich moderates a conversation with Zach Fister, Milan DeLal, and Travis Norton, in which they discuss committee chair Maxine Waters' agenda and dive into legislative proposals that could gain traction over the next year.
1: Welcome back to another Brownstein podcast. I'm Mark Baggage. I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, Zach Fister, Milan Delala, and Travis Norton to discuss financial service policy. Most people are just happy they have a, you know, figure out their checking account and savings account, but there's a lot of things that are potential in Congress. Uh, that might be in front of us, and when you look at kind of the shopping list of what people care about, you know, the financial services seem, especially on the house side, seems to be expansive in what they can do and what they can touch. And maybe Zach, give me give me kind of a feel of what they're doing or thinking about doing. You know, kind of a thirty thousand foot level because I know that committee. When you look at their agenda, it's a, it's a mile long of everything you can imagine, right. right? But there's kind of give us a sense of what's what's happening, especially. As we look to what I would call next year, half year,
2: <laughs> because sure. it's not a full year, really. <laughs> well, I, I think that the the current theme and the theme heading into next year is going to be one of continued oversight, particularly of larger financial institutions, uh, a continued effort to preserve the existing statute uh, for the role of the CFPB. Uh, there has been focus... Uh, more recently on issues related to affordable housing, low and middle income uh, consumers and the like. And I think that 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 will continue looking ahead. Um, There's also been some focus on uh, lending practices, both uh, in the collection space, but also in the um, direct lending space regarding student loans uh, and affordability there. Uh, And and the committee, you're actually seeing them – Branch out into other areas of uh, know, ancillary relationships to homelessness, to climate change, and how that all kind of comes back together um, in terms of the chairwoman's views of of strong consumer protections across the board.
1: The, the chairwoman, uh, Maxine Waters. I mean, she's no uh, quiet person. Uh, when she sees an issue in jurisdiction or maybe semi in jurisdiction, she's not afraid. It seems to take that on and I know there's a couple issues Milan. maybe you want to expand on I know she you know housing is a big issue diversity a variety of things and it's not only these core issues that the financial services does but there's an expansion of kind of uh, secondary issues, but somehow they're looping it in or she's looping it in.
3: Absolutely. Well, I think um, Chair Waters and her staff have a lot of pent-up energy after being in the minority for <laughs> the last eight years, and um, that has led to a very robust um, oversight and legislative agenda. It's actually remarkable the number of hearings and markups that they've already held in the first eight, year- uh, eight months of uh, this Congress. But a couple areas where I feel like uh, uh, they um, have a particular focus uh, are diversity, inclusion, and then um, protecting uh, the CFPB or ensuring that uh, there's appropriate enforcement of the law um, uh, as mandated by Dodd-Frank. In terms of diversity and inclusion, um, you can tell how much – Chair Waters cares about this because she created a new subcommittee it's chaired by Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, uh, focused on diversity and inclusion in the financial services sector. And they're not just holding it's hearings. It's a whole new subcommittee. It's a whole new subcommittee. And they're not just holding hearings. Uh, they're actually legislating. So Congresswoman Beatty has a bill that would require um, – any regional Federal Reserve bank that is interviewing for a president um, to implement its own version of the NFL's Rooney Rule. And so uh, she's actually calling it the Beatty Rule, uh, where they would have to – they would be required to interview at least one uh, gender-inclusive and one racially or ethnically inclusive candidate for the presidency. Really? So so now – for, the, and let's make sure people understand it's the president of
1: that uh, of that regional, uh, federal, regional reserve bank. federal reserve bank, not the president of the United States, um, but uh, the idea of doing that. Um, what does that do to the system? I mean, does it slow down the process to select someone, or
3: is it wh- help me help the you know the listener understand what does that do? Sure, I think it, I think what it, they're trying to accomplish is um, have the regional federal reserve banks. Which uh constitute uh, you know the uh, portions of the federal reserve system be more representative of the entire country and the economy, and so the Federal Reserve uh, system when it was created in 1913, the the reason they had regional Federal Reserve bank branches was to ensure that different um, portions of the economy, uh, uh, for example, Kansas City, uh, would uh, represent views that aren't necessarily seen in Washington, for example, the farm economy. Um, And the motivation behind having this legislation is to ensure that the people who are running those institutions – have uh, a broad enough perspective, uh, you know, that is beyond sort of the uh, Ivy League economist um, uh, viewpoint. Let
1: me ask you, um, there's, as you think of those issues, I know there's one, some call them interest rate caps, usury laws. Travis, tell me kind of what you're seeing out there. This seems to be, you hear it come up once in a while? But I'm wondering if it's going to come up in a way because we're now in a hyper-political year because we're moving into the presidential. But what are you hearing on that front in regards to
4: what uh, the chairwoman might be interested in or members of the committee? Yeah, there are many things that the chairwoman has on her legislative agenda. Picking up on the conversation we were just having, one thing that's conspicuously kind of absent is a data privacy-type law, uh, Where you say a, absent, in the list of kind of a, the list of
1: legislation she's focused on, right. that issue is kind of not there yet.
4: It is absent and data privacy legislation has always suffered from the fact that the committee jurisdiction process in both the House and the Senate is very split and data security and data privacy is uh, an important issue across a lot of industries. So you have multiple committees trying to solve a problem and not always working together on yeah. it. but. Uh, whereas Senate banking uh, is likely to produce data privacy, data security legislation this fall. Do you think that will be um, bipartisan or do you think it – There's a hope that it will be bipartisan. Okay. But uh, Chairwoman Waters has um, – I don't know that she has expressly passed on it. But California um, recently enacted the um, California Consumer Privacy Act or CCPA, which uh, is very – I think a very – Prescriptive uh, regime for consumer privacy and consumer data. And there's this dispute nationally, uh, at least in federal policy, as to whether the California law should serve as a floor for federal policy or should be subject to federal preemption if Congress were to take it up. And I think uh, the chairwoman presently would like to see how the California law plays out, might in the future be open to entertaining a federal law that preempts state law, but it, would, it could not be any more – any less restrictive than the CCPA. But to answer your question, one area where I think the chairwoman is very interested in legislating and that kind of breaks through a little bit of the, the din on all of the things that they're conducting oversight and legislating on is this idea of a 36 percent rate – interest rate cap on lending – um, there is some when legis- people hear that, what you're saying is uh, for certain elements
1: of the industry and in financial services, they will not be able to charge more than 36
4: percent per year. Yes. There's a law presently called the Military Lending Act that establishes a 36 percent APR cap on uh loans made to service members mm-hmm. and there's a desire on uh, among many Democrats, uh, particularly the more progressive side of the of the caucus to extend that really to all consumers. What's good for the military should be good for every Tom Dick and Harry on the street. There's a bit of a struggle that Zach and Milan would be able to speak more intelligently about in the Democratic caucus about, <coughs> If you control the cost of loans to consumers, what does it do to access for the consumers that are um, subprime, near prime and therefore perhaps more likely to default? Ratings. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, But I do think this issue of rate caps, it's a very – it's easy to sell uh, back home on the trail, easy to stump about because everybody has – a credit card, a loan, these kinds of things, and it's easy. It's easier to sell that kind of policy back home than on, you know, the complexity is about you know student loan servicing.
1: Zach, let me let me expand on that. Now, I do want to come back to uh, the privacy issue, and I know there is. And I'll let you explain it, with the GDPR example that people are talking about. But let me go back to stay on the on the user cap for a second. What is what are the Democrats? I mean, first of you got presidential debates every month it seems now. Uh, will this pop up in the mix? Will the caucuses of the House or Senate? What's the what's the debate there that's happening? And Travis made an interesting point. If you restrict the amount that someone can earn on a high risk borrower will that money disappear from that marketplace and what what's right.
2: the what's the thinking Well so of the I mean I, I think that there are plenty of presidential hopefuls on the record in support of uh, a usury cap such as the, the legislation that's being floated about in the House and Senate uh, there are various pieces there are also usury cap bills that would cap credit cards at 15% um and I think that you know, among uh, among a good group of Democrats too, that the the fear is, is that everyone latches on to this idea, similar to a to a, a Medicare for all type situation, where it becomes a very popular, and its popularity overcomes the practicality of the approach, and then it becomes a race to the bottom on on rates. And what happens when you have that race to the bottom, but you don't have a solution for uh, continuing access to credit for Subprime borrowers, um, or even borrowers with decent credit, um, something like this wouldn't just affect um, individuals who already have a hard time getting a, a credit card or a loan. It would affect folks. It has a ripple effect. Oh, it absolutely it down right. goes down right. I mean, it, because you know, if we continue with the same, if industry would continue with the same uh, model that it uses to currently determine one's risk, uh, the bottom falls out there for those with, with lower or bad credit. And to date, there has not been a solution to that. And there are folks and institutions uh, in, in sort of that middle credit range that offer alternatives to, to payday lending whether it's through uh, through installment lending or through payday alternative loans, through credit unions or the like. But that is – that does not cover near the demand um, in that space. And if this – if these caps would go into place without the solutions to accompany them, the, the very people that they are seeking to protect would be most at risk of – losing access to credit. And
3: just to emphasize Zach's point, um, uh, there's some data out there that um, underscores the concern that some of these Democrats have about rate cap legislation. Uh, The Federal Reserve conducts an annual uh, consumer household survey um, where uh, it's often cited that um, uh, uh, about half of all American families don't have sufficient savings to meet Um, a a financial emergency of $400. And, um, uh, you know, often they have to turn to uh, uh, various, um, you know, uh, lending sources to, uh, you know, meet those emergency financial needs. So uh, that is one significant concern. There's a U.S. bank product um, that U.S. bank has been um, experimenting with with their consumer base. Uh, they, They are, I think, the sixth-largest uh, retail bank in the country, um, and they're offering a short-term loan to um, existing customers, and they're unable to do it at less than 88% on an, a- on an APR basis. Wow. And so if the one of the largest banks in the country it is unable volume. to do it, it that has, has volume mm-hmm. and has an existing you know, captive customer base, there's, there's a legitimate question as to how others might be able to do it at a lower rate. It's an intricate, it's like if you solve one piece, you still have to solve
1: access to capital, Right. That's I mean, true. a
4: combination. You can't do one without the other. And in addition to Chairwoman Waters' interest in a 36 percent cap, um, there's also legislation from the progressive left, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some partners in the Senate on a 15 percent cap. Uh, so there's a little bit to the left. There's obviously a lot of energy, kind of on the business and industry side, to ensure that rates can be commensurate with market risk. You, you can see why. I mean, I'm just sitting here as again as a former elected, how
1: that is appealing from the messaging, right? You know, when you say 36, people go, "What do you mean?" Then you say, "Well, we want to lower it to 15." The first response is, "Why not?" right so and it's kind of interesting because you don't read a lot about it you hear a little bit here and there but it just seems it's one of those issues that I think if someone says this is what I'm going to work on uh, I remember um, Mark you'd all worked on a bill to ensure your credit score would be free right and he wasn't able to do it but just the awareness and now today you can get your credit score free and almost every credit card or finance group will give it to you you just tap a button but in the old days, they wanted to make sure you paid for that. And it's interesting when you create the awareness, maybe not even legislation, things shift in the marketplace because they're worried about D.C. coming in and regulating to the extreme versus rational regulation. It's an interesting – let me – Travis, let me not end with – I want to segue right into this because first I want you to explain what this is because um, uh, always – I love when we deal in D.C. It's always initials about things. It's not – Full names of anything, you know, but the the uh, GDPR, uh, which is uh, it's a privacy legislation, and there's some discussion within Congress to kind of replicate or get pieces of that. Tell me, for the listening audience, what is it, and what does that mean Mm -hmm. in regards to privacy? And this, when I hear about this one, it's pretty. It's pretty in-depth
4: <laughs> or extreme, some might say, right? Yeah. So GDPR is the privacy regime or, or data privacy directive um, that applies uh, in the European Union. And the reason you're bringing it up and the reason it's relevant to our financial services podcast here is there's been a lot of discussion as the United States looks toward a data privacy regime. We have the benefit – of being able to see what the Europeans have done, uh, good and bad, and and trying to learn from their experience. Now, Europe um, is a little bit different of a financial services economy in that there are fewer financial institutions. It's uh, significantly more monolithic than our very diverse financial services economy here. Uh, In this country, we have not fewer than five or six um, financial services regulators at the federal level, um, state banking commissioner. When you say that, just make sure It's not five people; it's five agencies. Five agencies. Yeah, <laughs> well, so it's five people. Thousands in a row. of people. <laughs> yeah, thousands of people. <laughs> uh, state regulators, state licensing boards. We have um, as fractured a regulatory apparatus as we have a diverse financial services community. So any data privacy. Um, approach here in the United States has to take account for that. Um, The Senate Banking Committee has been very interested in data privacy. Uh, Chairman Mike Crapo from Idaho has for a long time been very concerned about data privacy, both data held by uh, companies on you that you may have given to the company or that they may have acquired about you, and data held by uh, financial services regulators, most notably the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. But he has um, foreshadowed uh, his plan to release legislation that would govern data privacy in the financial services sector and he has had said some uh, complementary and also some critical things about different aspects of GDPR. But I think as we look toward the fall um, and we should note that Chairman Crapo's um, term Under the rules of the Republican conference, his term as the chairman of Senate banking is ending at the end of 2020. So he has about um, 15 months to really get his priorities advanced. But um, I think that he will this fall release some legislation that will restructure data privacy rules as applied to the financial services sector at the federal level. Uh, A particular component of this Legislation will be this question of who owns a particular piece of consumer data. So the consumer amount, or the person who has exactly. It. So the amount that Mark Begich has in his checking account today at Bank of America um, is that an amount that um, a Bank of America or any bank can kind of cling to, or should you, the consumer, have the right to? Uh, enable another business to reach into B of A's frame, mainframe, and pull that piece of data out for some other use or for a similar use that you would orchestrate as the consumer. So these are questions that the committee is wrestling with. Again, as we noted earlier, the uh, Commerce Committee and both the Senate and the House have a lot of jurisdiction over data privacy. The Senate and House Judiciary Committees have rattled the saber about having some jurisdiction over data privacy from is an that, antitrust perspective. Is that a challenge for legislation that you have these kind of multi-jurisdictional
1: committees know, trying to – It's, it's like, the reason
2: it, that we've been having this debate for 20 years. Yeah, like
4: who's on first to figure out who starts to lead on the legislation? Is that – It's that's exactly right um, and you have – Different um, lobbying interests in town, uh, and from the states that come, and they talk to the committee that regulates them. And but the the issue is so diffuse across different committees' jurisdictions, and no chairman; they all have an incumbency preference to deny the others access to their jurisdiction to come up with a comprehensive solution. So, what I think you'll see is continued fractured. Um, rifle shots at data privacy in the financial services sector, in the retail or non-financial commerce sector, and uh, at some point in the future, perhaps there will be enough data breaches that Congress Someone will say, something. it's time for us to put our swords down.
1: Yeah, We're running close on time, but I want to get to one quick issue, and that is um, I know that Congressman Waters has talked about artificial intelligence and and kind of the – Financial technology, and she has, I think, I don't know if it's committees or task force she's established to really go into these issues. I don't know, Zach, if you have any commentary on that. What, what is that? I always like to say when 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 legislators create more stuff, is that good or is that bad or is it just more information that we all have to deal with and clients
2: that call and say, "What does this all mean?" Well, I think for purposes of navigating. These uh, public policy issues, it's a good thing because it allows interested members of the committee to have a place to kind of focus their efforts and I think that uh, I think that folks in industry view this as an opportunity to engage in an area that, so FinTech's create some discussion that right, right, and it's always been in an, an area where the innovation continues to outpace the the Policy, legislators, yeah. the policymakers, the regulators, and they they are ever trying to catch up, right? And that I mean that that's the whole point of innovation, right? Is to to keep things moving forward. I believe that these two task forces that were created, the fintech task force and the artificial intelligence task force. Mm-hmm serve that purpose to funnel those proposals, those ideas, and the focus of the members into a more formalized capacity. They are – they were established at the beginning of this congress. They – for all intents and purposes, they – are pseudo-subcommittees. Mm-hmm. So they can this, have hearings. They, they, and they, they can have, have hearings. They can mm-hmm. put forth legislation, et cetera. They have uh, Democrats and Republicans. They have chairs and ranking members. And they do hold regular hearings. They tend to alternate every other month. The differentiation between the two is best to think of it this way. So the FinTech Task Force will focus more on issues around mobile uh, mobile payments, uh, blockchain digital ledger technology and um, there was one cryptocurrency other one or no? no cryptocurrency would fall into that distributed ledger technology okay. but they you know they will stress that, it's, that it is that is beyond that their, their idea there is to look beyond your idea of, of what, what it is, it is cuz right? it's it's not way beyond not just bitcoin but what right. can I mean, it's blockchain, like blockchain. Be used people have for, no idea for for myriad for the purposes it. and then i guess the other bucket would be what they would refer to as the digital lending space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And probably better to think of it as digital underwriting. But um, so, so those focuses in the fintech task force and then the AI task force is better to think of you as Mark Begich's digital identity and what can Congress and industry do to strengthen and protect your digital identity through stronger... From a consumer... End. Authentication, right, from consumer protection stand, standpoint, um, stronger authentication um, and security uh, apparatus within that realm, um, but also looking at these rapidly evolving AI technologies being used by banks and credit unions and fintech companies to ensure that... Uh, this AI is not uh, presenting, or either inadvertently or deliberately, any bias in those right. in Denying those you biases. access to capital. Right. You don't want what you don't want is an AI technology or application being utilized that actually is actively discriminating against the consumer in terms of helping um, determine metrics that would uh, provide this institution from deciding whether or not to give you a loan, right? Because of factors that. It shouldn't be factoring. I mean
1: it seems like financial service, it never ends, right? There's always – I mean the list you just went through, the list you went through at the beginning, Zach, um, what Travis talked about with all the you know, issues around security and so forth. And what I like to say is the secondary issues of housing and all that that Malone talked about. You still have stuff you have to do, right? You the, certain bills expire, And when they expire, they cause disruption in the financial service industry, maybe regulatory or otherwise. Is there one or two items quickly each one of you could kind of rattle off that might be, you know, you kind of have to do, but not necessarily it's hopeful yet, but you got to do because if you don't do them. You're going to have a ripple or stuff that just seems like they're going to have to work on it. They may not solve it, but they're going to have to work on it. What, what do people need to kind of like if they were going to open up the financial paper of Brownstein tomorrow and say, what's the items You know, people need to keep their eye on? What would that be? Let me start with you, Travis. If that's well, okay. I think
4: uh, maybe I speak for all there, – there are three things that perennially have to get done um, and they are largely – I would characterize them as reauthorizations or extensions of existing programs the National Flood Insurance Program. Which uh, is always a battle. Always a battle. Yeah. Um, coastal versus others. Yes. <laughs> that's kind of how I put it. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that's a very interesting one because of that divide. It is coastal versus inland. It's not so much Republican, Democrat. Yeah. Um, the reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank, which is a – uh, credit insurance, credit subsidy for a lot of our exporters, very important to them. And that. on
1: the Senate side, there's a couple of folks always that hate that. They don't like that
4: uh, organization at all. A lot of rhetoric from some of the more conservative members yep. that it's a – it promotes cronyism. And, right. And it's uh, why we're helping foreign – you know, companies that are doing business overseas. You know, it's all that argument of – Nationalism versus internationalism. So those things have to get done in in 2019.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, in 2020, um, the terrorism risk insurance program. That expires next fall? Next, yes, next fall. And that will need to get extended. And for each of these three things, um, there's a series of kind of dials. They're often referred to as dials where you can turn up the government support or turn up the interest of the private sector and so that's really the debate is always how much government stands behind these yeah, programs. Who pays for what? Exactly. So those are the three that really have to get done. And then I would just kind of note that the uh, Trump administration across a couple different agencies uh, put out very recently um, uh, new thoughts on housing finance reform, which has really um, some people refer to as the great unfinished work of Dodd-Frank. Uh, Dodd-Frank didn't really touch our housing finance system. And so you have now for um, 11 years, you've had Fannie and Freddie in conservatorship. And um, I think there's a lot of interest on the Hill in trying to see what does housing finance look like in the future. But uh, as it has taken over a decade now, of just conversation and new ideas – I think that's unlikely to get over the line. But there's a little bit of renewed interest about that in the last week or so. Zach Milan, any
1: other thoughts on those? So unlike the bills that have to kind of crank away? I I would just say
2: if if it is true that to date the committee has sort of put the data privacy and data breach issue on the back back burner, whereas in years past they have attempted to – uh, to broach the issue, always to come to loggerheads with other committees of jurisdiction, most notably Energy and Commerce. Mm-hmm. Energy and Commerce in the House is, is without question taking the lead on the data privacy debate uh, for, uh, for that chamber. But as Travis mentioned, if the Senate Banking Committee does in fact put forth legislation on a, a broad comprehensive data privacy um, bill – and as anticipated, uh, if Energy and Commerce puts forth legislation as well, I, I would be hard pressed to uh, to see the House Financial Services Committee completely stand by without engaging, e- engaging to some respect, whether it's whether it's hearings, whether it's some ancillary uh, companion piece, maybe that Senate banking doesn't address or they don't like it. Um, I mean, Waters has clearly uh, deferred to ENC, I think, very much in large part because of her support of CCPA. So right. you know, not trying to rock the boat there, but if they see an opportunity to engage on that, I, I think that none of us should be surprised. And, and couple that with some of the more recent data breaches within the financial services industry, we, we shouldn't be surprised to see some increased conversation in the coming months especially getting into a presidential year where it's on maybe topic. it's maybe right it'll be on topic but maybe there will be less uh legislating and more uh d- deliberation so uh, i think we should be looking out for that Go on.
3: the, the only other piece that i would add uh to zach's list would be uh the um, there's a bipartisan working group in the Senate that is considering reforms to the Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering rules, and we expect uh, uh, their draft bill or legislation to be introduced sometime this month. Uh, there's you think bipartisan? Uh, it's it is bipartisan. It uh, is yes. um, okay. It's a, I think it's uh, two Republican, two Democratic senators on the banking. Committee. Oh, very good. Yeah, they've been engaged in negotiations for months. Um, the goal is to try to update and modernize uh, the reporting regime in part, so that uh, the data that the government collects is much more useful and also updated for the twenty first century. Right. Yeah, right. So they're not sending it in, in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I know they don't do that, that, but I'm just or yeah. reporting. You know, Travis's twenty five dollar withdrawal at the ATM.
1: Right. Well, we, we might want to know what yeah, he's doing. Highly is, suspicious. Is very suspicious well, at two just in the morning. Add to <laughs> Alonso,
2: if if you and. Tell me if you agree, but I, I would argue that uh, that potential piece of legislation or that issue has the most likelihood of moving in terms of a big-ticket item uh, in, in this space. And I would, I would argue that, that they have been – especially on the Senate side um, and the House side, they have been very engaged with stakeholders for input and feedback to ensure that they get this so right. they can move it. And then they can move it. Uh, And I think that industry has been pretty receptive to it. So it's Um, one to
1: keep our eyes on. Yes. Well, again, thank you guys for doing a great job today on financial services. Uh, Milan, Zach, Travis, uh, as always, the Brownstein team gives a good uh, summary of what's going on, but also a little bit of in-depth. So thank you all very much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.